Let's, uh, let me pray for us. We're going to continue our, our study on uh, doubt and deconstruction, and particularly we're focusing in on the topic of hell today and how that can be uh, a problem for people as they're deconstructing and potentially moving to deconversion. So let me pray for us. Father, as we talk about uh, this sobering topic, it is so important for us to understand this according to your word for so many reasons. Uh, so we pray that you would help us today to, to better understand your teaching on hell as well as the character of you, our, our gracious, merciful, loving, just, and holy God. Lord, I pray too, especially for those who may be struggling with their faith now or who are interacting with friends and neighbors and loved ones who are wrestling with their faith, that this would strengthen us in the confidence of your word and the work of your spirit and the desire to be more faithful, to preach and proclaim and praise you for the just and holy and merciful God that you are. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I uh, just wanted to do a, a quick review um, and this was from an article, a guy who's kind of tried to put some categories for us about why are people struggling with, what are some roadblocks, struggles to their faith. Um, we've talked about that as deconstructing, kind of figuring out why do I really believe or not believe what's going on, which can lead to deconversion, which I think was a helpful distinction. Uh, one of the topics he says is just church hurt, that because people have been deeply wounded and offended, sinned against, uh, either personally or even just kind of the, the broader look at all the church's failures, that those could be real obstacles uh, that are going on in their faith. And, and I go over these. I'm going to be quick. It's not to uh, minimize them. It's just to, again, give you categories. Because in all this, we want to be very sensitive and realize, hey, this is an opportunity to bear witness to the beauty of the hope of the gospel in Christ. Um, so don't, hopefully you won't hear me minimizing these things because these are very real and this is what he offers. He says, really, um, if the problem is hurt, church hurt, uh, then grief and lament is the cure for that, not walking away from the faith. It's grieving for those things, recognizing that sinners are in the church, lamenting over them, uh, but um, taking them ultimately to the Lord. Um, let's see if there's anything I want to say else. Um, so second, another reason people uh, often do that is because they desire to sin. Uh, and if you're walking in sin, you need to have, be able to kind of distance yourself from God and be able to say, well, I'm going to do this, so I don't want there to be a God who's going to judge me for my actions, so I'm going to deconstruct my faith. Otherwise, I'm going to be dealing with guilt and shame. And lots of times that's done subconsciously, uh, not knowingly, that you're, you're wrestling with what's going on. Um, so that's another category. Another one he put is street cred. What he means by that is people particularly who are in the culture who are um, influencers who are feeling the pressure of the culture. And so if they deconstruct and match what else is going on, they become part of the conversation. They might be able to get uh, a better audience. And I know that sounds cynical, but sometimes I think the pressure of that can make people want to kind of ride the train of what's going on is what his argument is. And for that, um, what he says... Oh, that's not good. I'm not good with this, apparently. There we go. Hold on. Go back. 
uh, is the crucifixion of your image. Uh, to not worry about what people think of you, but be committed to who the Lord is and what he's teaching. Um, the fourth one is what we're going to talk about a little bit today. He says sometimes deconstruction happens because of bad teaching. Uh, just that people aren't given a full biblical understanding of Scripture. And so therefore, when they have a sub-biblical or character of certain issues, and they run into things, for example, one time, uh, one article, not this one, as people are talking that sometimes when we hit suffering, we fit, question our faith because we have a very small view of God. We have a, like, if I obey God and do what's right, I shouldn't suffer. Uh, and that a bit of the uh, prosperity gospel has leaked in. So therefore, uh, I don't have categories for suffering, and therefore God must not be true. Um, and I think all of us have experienced that. I know I have at times, both as a teenager and as an adult, where I've wondered, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Uh, but through that, for me, by God's grace and through his people in the church, I was pushed to greater depth and trust in him, even in the midst of the suffering and pain. And so that is where this topic, in particular, the doctrine of hell, would fall in bad teaching. I think there's been sub-biblical and uh, poor teaching that has um, both about God, about sin, about hell, uh, that keep us from understanding it as we ought to. So my hope for this morning is that we'll reclaim a greater confidence in the goodness of God, not in spite of this topic, but because of it. Uh, that we'll have greater confidence in biblical teaching on hell and what the Bible has to say about it. Uh, and that hopefully it'll move you to want to pray for the lost, um, to proclaim the gospel and invite people to trust in Jesus and uh, to worship him. So that, that's my, my hope. Now, we're going to do a little pre-test, a little pop quiz, um, and I know you guys love these things. I'm going to give you about two minutes to answer this on your own, and then I want you to turn kind of in a group. You can make your own, you're adults, and, and talk, and, and you introverts, I'm giving you a couple minutes to think beforehand, okay? I'm not just breaking you up into small groups right away. I'm going to give you two minutes, which will seem like ten hours in a group like this. So you can get some answers in your head. Then I'm going to let you have about three or four minutes as a group, but I'll let you know then. Okay, so five questions. Um, do answer them before you get into the small group. So take, take your time now. Formulate your answers. Then I'm going to let you break up. And it is open Bible. You can open your Bibles. or I don't want you to Google, but you can open your Bibles. <clears throat> the extra time is for five. The other ones you'll just guess or make a statement. All right, I hear discussion starting. So break up into your groups. Find some people near you. Um, kind of work through them. Uh, particularly question five. But kind of run through the first ones on question five. Just see what passages come to mind. 
about one more minute. I know you haven't, won't have ex- exhausted your breath of knowledge, but one more minute. All right, take 10, 15 more seconds, wrap up whatever thought someone is sharing, then we're going to jump in. Let's come back together. Again, we're continuing our study on doubt and deconstruction. And particularly this morning, we're talking about one of the challenges is uh, people's view of hell and the whole existence of hell can be one of those stumbling blocks. Uh, And part of that comes from bad teaching. And so we want to kind of think about good teaching this morning. And then uh, we just discussed in small groups, uh, kind of some discussion starters. Um, I don't want to take a whole lot of time, but we'll go quickly through. One, true or false? It is. In the next slide, but, well, I'll hold that. All right. Um, person who speaks most about hell in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. True or false? Who speaks the most about hell in the Bible? Man, y'all are good students. All right. Or the questions are really easy, maybe. The terms used to describe hell are symbolic. True or false? Oh, a little division there. Um, Fill in the blank. Heaven and? Oh, okay. Heaven and hell or heaven and earth? So, in not one single Bible verse are heaven and hell ever connected. I'm not telling you that your association was wrong. I'm just telling you that fact. So, Because um, <clears throat> heaven and earth is good. Heaven and hell are good associations. But there's not one time in the Bible that heaven and hell are in the same verse. Um, um, and we'll take just quick. What, what are some key passages that you thought of with relation to hell? The rich man and Lazarus, yes. The parable there in Luke 16. Mark 9, I didn't hear the first part. Yeah, yep. If your eye causes you to cast it out rather than go to hell. What, what else? Yep, the sheep and the goats and the last judgment. Any other passages? Revelation? What particularly? 
Yeah, thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, it's not as easy as it you think, is it? Like we know it's a familiar topic. We know the Bible's there, but trying to put some of these things together um, is a little more challenging. Um, uh, so there's this every couple of years, um, Ministry Ligonier puts out a state of theology, does a, a um, survey. Uh, this year was about 3,000 people. Um, in the U.S., in general, 71% agree that everyone's born innocent in the eyes of God. And the sad thing, in my opinion, is the differences between evangelicals. Again, I know that's a debated word, but it was essentially people who believe that the Bible is the word of God and that you need Jesus for salvation. So, I mean, it kind of fits. I uh, don't want to go too far into that. But 65% agree also that everyone's born innocent. Um, so that how you view our nature is significant as you broach the topic of hell. Uh, now, it was interesting, 59% actually do agree that there is a literal hell. Um, not in this study, but another one person said, well, because it, it was different, uh, this was an older one, and it said, oh, 70% of America believes that there's a hell, but only 6% believe that they would go there, or something like that. You know, so uh, it's for everybody else, you know. Um, um, so, you know, uh, there's a, a man named John Frame. He's uh, known for something called triperspectivalism. Um, I won't go into all the depths of it, but there's different ways to look at different truths. Not to make, say that they're different, but from um, kind of a different perspective. And there's ways we can look at our salvation. And one of the primary ways we look at it, particularly since the Reformation, is at, by justification by faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, and we look at it about are we justified or not? Have we believed in Christ or not? And that, that was kind of even uh, further developed and emphasized uh, through the revivalism era. And so lots of times when we think about heaven and hell, we do think about am I in or am I out? And is it based on whether I'm in Christ or out of Christ? And that's a very valid and appropriate way to think of it. Sometimes we think of our adoption as being sons and daughters, uh, what God has accomplished for it. And it's more a filial, uh, relational aspect versus a judicial aspect. Then there's another, and there, there are more than three, but the other, another way of thinking about um, our salvation is in terms of the kingdom, where Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the king is here. We pray for God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so what I want to do, and I found this intriguing, there's, I mean, Ross asked me to do this. I'm like, oh sure, this won't be bad. I got into so many rabbit trails over the last several weeks reading. Um, so as I was driving around yesterday with my wife, like, I have so much. Like, there is like 21 pages here, just so you know, um, that I'm trying to condense into our 45 minutes. Um, and I'll try to have a handout that I can have for you guys later, but it won't be today. Um, so I want us to think in terms of something we've talked about in the kingdom, kind of the big four movement story of creation, fall, redemption, and glorification, restoration. Uh, you're probably familiar with those movements. It's kind of the big overarching story of the scriptures, uh, and it's 
a bigger picture. It's of the kingdom of God, and it, it focuses less on individuals. It's this bigger, massive movement. And so we know in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created all things uh, and that they were good. Uh, he created heaven and earth. Uh, it was good. He created uh, man and woman, and it was very good. And, and then in Genesis 3, we know that sin entered into the world, that we disobeyed God's commands. We uh, questioned what he said was good for us. And uh, through Adam and Eve, sin entered in the world, and it has continued to bring its devastation. And as Paul writes in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And we see that immediately, even when God had to kill the animals to clothe Adam and Eve. And it broke their relationship with one another. And the, the ripple effects, the damage done to God's good creation was brought into creation by man and perpetuated by humanity. So that's really important to think. Um, in fact, uh, this one guy put it this way. Essentially, um, we brought hell into earth, um, that we were the ones who destroyed uh, this good creation of God. Um, so the rest of the Bible, really, from Genesis 3, beginning in 3.15, we have the first promise of the gospel, where it says that though um, the seed of the one will be struck on the heel, the seed of the one will crush the head of the serpent. So there's this promise of the gospel that there's going to be one who comes from the seed of the woman who's going to restore heaven and earth, who's going to make all things new again, who's going to bring redemption and restoration. Um, and we see that um, even in Romans 8, this longing, this how the earth is groaning for the, new, for the coming of Jesus, the new things. Revelation 20 gives us that picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, even Colossians 1, 19 and 20 talks about how he's restoring all things and Jesus says king has authority and dominion over all of creation in Matthew 28. Um, and then in Revelation 22, we have this picture of the wedding feast where heaven and earth are united. Now you might be going, that's great, I know this. What's this have to do with hell? Anyone thinking of that at the moment? Like, why are you taking us back to this? Because, again, we're looking at a, a macro picture of what God is doing. What, what is God's good intent? His good intent is to restore and to reconcile and to make things whole. Um, and um, again, this is from an article. Um, let me find the guy's name. Um, his last name is Butler. I'll get it for you in a second. Um, I have it elsewhere at the end. He has some great quotes. To long for the dawning of the light by its nature is to long for the casting out of darkness. To hope for the healing of the body is implicitly hoping for the excising of the disease. And remember, as we're praying your kingdom come on our earth as it is in heaven, what are we then asking? We're asking God to push out sin and destruction and its effects from this world. So God is doing a good thing as he recreates us and restores us and takes, in a, you could say in a way, hell out of us as we are remade into the image of God. Okay? So there's this grand sweep of redemption and restoration and goodness and wholeness to make things good again so that all that's been in this earth driven out. He has this line, it's heaven breaking into 
heaven breaking into earth means pushing hell out. There's a symmetry to hoping for the coming of God's kingdom and hope for Christ's judgment on unrepentant sin that unleashes havoc in our world. Because God is good, he is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth, and God is on a mission to get hell out of earth. Love that line. And it just, again, thinks, I think it pushes again, because, right, what's the, the caricature a little bit for those who are struggling with heaven? That there is this, you know, heaven is up, and you go up into heaven into the clouds, and, you know, you play your harps, and we know that's bad, but we kind of think that, and so hell means you go down, and you're in a torture chamber, and God is punishing you, and there's fire, and and there's devils with pitchforks, and of course we're too sophisticated to believe that part, but we do think that this, this cruel, vindictive God, this is, I think, the sub-biblical idea, this cruel, vindictive God who's punishing the undeserving. But I want you to see that God who created all things good is making those things new, and to make those things new, he has to push out evil and sin and hell. And so I think it's a, a way to help us think about it, and... Um, it's interesting too, again, while I won't fully endorse this guy, I think he helps reset how we're thinking about things and give us um, better imagery, biblical imagery. Um, and so he says, you know, hell's not some underground torture chamber. Really, hell is being outside the city. Now, again, it's interesting. He's doing some biblical theology there, kind of tracing the storyline. Um, the New Testament word for hell is the word Gehenna, which is a literal place that was outside the city. Uh, it was where they burned um, trash and bodies, and, it, and in the Old Testament, it was a place of child sacrifice. And so it was this place outside the city, this picture of torment, this picture of idolatry, this picture of being outside God's design. And so he... he just working through that, like, like that's the picture that Jesus used. This destructive power is, is pushed out. And then if you think, too, what, what's the picture in Revelation of the city, the new heavens and the new earth, Jerusalem coming out, and that God is there, the glory of Christ is there, there is no need for the doors to be locked because the enemies can't come in because they're going to be outside the city. Um, so it's just a different picture because again we're saying wait well, god is cruel god is doing this and now i want you to see god is seeking to restore and to renew and this is what he's doing um now again it's it doesn't remove all the obstacles but you're reframing the discussion particularly and again uh, this is trying to help those of us who do believe the word of god is true or maybe wrestling with that these are, are for those who have believed or have grown up in the church who are wrestling with biblical truth it's a little different if you're coming at this discussion with an unbeliever who doesn't believe in the scriptures. Um, some different approaches I think are helpful for that. Um, Tim Keller's book from years ago, Reason for God, has a good chapter on that. Um, how can a good God send people to hell? It's more philosophical uh, and will kind of hit on some issues, I think, for um, those outside the church. Um, but I think that picture can help us as we think about these things. Um, and, and even there's a passage in Zechariah 2, verse 4 and 5, where it says, Jerusalem will be a city without walls, 
because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, um, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So isn't it, that's kind of an interesting picture too. God is building, tearing out the walls so more people can come in under his protection. And inside the city, his presence is the glory of God. On outside the city, it's a wall of fire and protection. Which again, fits some with the theme in the garden. There was this beautiful place, you're to be here, now I'm going to set you outside the garden. And there are these angels who are keeping you from coming in. Again, what we're trying to do is say, what's the biblical narrative? What, who, is, who is God? Is he this vindictive, cruel tyrant? Or is he the good God to his very bones, the one who is holy and just, but the one who has planned from eternity to redeem and restore and reconcile and make new? So, hopefully that kind of helps in some ways, I think, as we think of it in terms of that question. Um, see, and as the way Scripture and the story presents it. it's not that God's cold-hearted. The problem is that we're hard-hearted. And we are hard-hearted towards God, and we want to, for many different reasons, want to run from Him. And Romans 1 is a passage in particular that talks about how God removes His restraining grace from us and allows us to follow the desires of our heart to our destruction. And so there's this sense that it's not God is pushing people away from him because Christ said, all who come to me, I will not turn away. God is allowing them to go to what they deserve, which is what all of us deserve. Again, that's another critique as well. If you believe you're in heaven or you get to go to heaven, then you must look down on other people. And we do need to be very careful as we think about judgment and hell that we don't become so proud and arrogant that we kind of look down on other sinners instead of saying, oh my goodness, by God's grace, I'm not being going to be cast away, but I've been redeemed and rescued by Jesus. And so there is this sense as we wrestle with these things that um, it needs to be done and, and motivated. And I think we have, um, there's an article where um, just D.A. Carson and Tim Keller were saying, hey, there, the importance of hell for the church is significant, and losing it is significant. Uh, they have different lists. Uh, Carson has eight, and Keller has, I think, six uh, motivations for why people would embrace the gospel. Number one on both their lists is the doctrine of hell. That without the doctrine of hell, without this bad news, they're not going to see a need to rest and believe in Christ. And if we have a weak view, an unbiblical view of hell, we're not going to be very motivated to, to preach Christ, to proclaim Christ, to see the lost. If it's, again, more just um, social Christianity, and I don't mean that necessarily in what you believe, but how you practice, then we lose that motivation to pray for the lost and to preach and to be willing to share the gospel even though it may um, put strain on relationships. Again, this is moving outside of the church, but even inside, I think, because we have this maybe less than developed view, uh, I think it, it can cause a problem. Um, so, uh, if not hell, then what? Um, some have this second chance theory that after you die, you get another chance to 
to respond to Jesus, and that's really can't be found in scriptures. Um, I see why you would want that, but that's not in the scriptures. Uh, another one that a lot of people will say they're not uh, espousing, but logically ends up is universalism. Uh, a good example of that is, um, I don't know, it's probably a decade ago now, but a guy named Rob Bell, uh, who had begun kind of within the streams of Christianity, began to take out key tenets of the, the scriptures. He used the illustration, you, if you have a trampoline, you can remove a few springs and you can still bounce. Um, well, the problem is he, he removed really all the springs by the end. And sadly, I mean, to his destruction, I believe, unless he comes back. And he said at first, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying I believe in universalism. That's not true. But the logical conclusion as he preached against Scripture became that reality. And then he eventually also, when he was removed from the gravity of Scripture, he then just flew off into the outer atmosphere away from truth. And again, that's with sadness, with concern for people who were there when he was teaching, uh, began teaching biblical truth and began to drift. Um, so universalism ends up because if, if, if God's going to save everyone, which Scripture is very clear, that is not the case. Again, you're, you're going against Scripture, and you, while your intent may be not, not to do that, that's where you end up. Uh, there's been another path that some have taken um, called annihilationism. And again, some good theologians have kind of come to that um, conviction largely, I think, because of the heartache it is for us. Like, I, I mean, I hope you realize, like for me, that was a real struggle even at different parts of my life, but to realize the doctrine of hell means some people I really love and care for are separated from God, experiencing His wrath, forever. I don't want that to be true for my worst enemy, let alone my own family. And so we have to wrestle with those things, and if we allow our own emotions and our conception of life, then we're in real trouble. So we have to anchor ourselves to what scriptures say. Um, and so those are really unbiblical, um, non-defensible, in my opinion, alternatives that we try to go to that don't end up um, remaining true to the scriptures yeah yeah so annihilationism is essentially judgment thanks i didn't say what it was you're annihilated you're done judgment comes that you are just removed and gone for eternity um it's not eternal it's not eternal punishment and wickedness um yeah Yeah, yeah. There are some. I mean, again, each of these has can have some biblical. People can use some biblical references, um, but ultimately, they're not. I believe true to the whole of the scriptures. Um, so, I want to just give a summary. This is from uh, a man named J.I. Packer. He has a little book called Concise Theology. It's a helpful. Um, book if you want it on your shelf. Uh, it just kind of gives a couple pages on um, lots of different doctrinal topics. Uh, but he says, the purpose of the Bible's teaching about hell is to make us appreciate, thankfully embrace, and rationally prefer the grace of Christ that saves us from it. 
It's really a mercy to mankind that God in Scripture is so explicit about hell. We cannot, say, we cannot now say that we have not been warned. Um, again, it's very, very sobering. Um, I'm going to run through some of the topics. This is why I said I'm going to have a handout for you because we can't go through all this, but I want to give you just kind of a sense, and this isn't exhaustive, but um, kind of categories that teach us um, a New Testament view of hell, uh, views hell um, as a final abode, those consigned eternal punishment, the last judgment, as a place of fire and darkness, as a place of weeping and grinding or gnashing of teeth, and again, you see in the Gospel of Matthew how much Christ talks about it as a place of destruction, a place of torment, uh, and it's also unending. There's also a passage in Isaiah uh, that references that um, about the, the worm enduring the ongoing fire, and that's quoted in the New Testament. And so in summary, it's a, a place of distress, and I would say, and most scholars agree, though I'm not a scholar, most of the scholars agree, um, the language is symbolic for a literal hell. Okay, So by saying it's symbolic, I'm not saying that hell isn't real. It's kind of like heaven. As the New Testament writers try to describe heaven, they're doing their best to describe something beyond their comprehension that is beautiful and glorious. Right, Streets of gold and diamonds and pearls and all these different uh, precious metals. Is that really what it is? Or are they saying, I, I don't have words to describe what this glorious communion with God is? And in the same way, the Old Testament is trying to give, or the Old Testament and New Testament is trying to give pictures that of the horror and the awfulness of the wrath of God being poured out upon you. Um, so hell is literal. The language, I think, is symbolic, meaning this that it is worse than the language that you're reading. Um, for example, like it's called, you know, it's the fires of hell and it's darkness. Well, fire brings light, right? So it's not exclusive. They're not trying to say literally these things because those two aren't quite literal if we're going to be literalistic. But they're symbolic of the true horror of, of what's going on. Um, so hell is self-chosen. Um, and that's large, come with several passages, but particularly Romans 1. Um, and let, let's turn to Romans 1, if you have your Bibles. I don't know if it originated with him, but I know that C.S. Lewis talks about that it, it is um, a room that's locked from the inside, not the outside. Uh, that, again, because of our choices, uh, and when God's removed our his restraining grace. Um, that's where we end up. So, Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So 
part of what this is saying too is this is this is it, God in His general revelation of creation has given humanity enough witness to know that there is a Creator and that He ought to be worshipped. So there is no one without excuse, even if they have not heard the gospel of Jesus. No one is without excuse because of what God has revealed through general revelation, through creation. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creator, creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then jumping down to, um, well, let's just keep reading. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So again, he's saying, look, I removed restraints. And it, one of the um, ways that took was going outside of God's design for sexual intimacy, um, not only outside the bonds of marriage, but outside of man and woman. And it they received themselves the penalty for their error. See, that's the starting point of Scripture. All of us deserve hell. We all deserve the wrath of God from the very beginning. Uh, the problem is I think we think that's really only for the worst offenders um, because we don't understand the holiness of God. So you see bad teaching about the holiness of God, about the nature of man, the purpose of man. Uh, all those things impact how we think about all these pieces. There are real domino effects. And since they did not see fit, verse 28, to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Um, again, Butler in his article, I think, gave something helpful. He tried to move from the macro to the micro um, in this sense. So he was talking about, I mean, we all see the horrors of genocide and slave trafficking. And he said, but those things happen because of the lusts in our heart, because of the pride and arrogance in our heart, the selfishness and sinfulness. And so... He tries to move and say, like, those things we hate, they happen because of individuals and their hearts. It's not just this external thing that it is sin that pushes us towards those things, and we are guilty of those things um, as human beings. Uh, so, again, I think um, understanding some of the very character of what it's doing now, it, it, it's, this is not saying... God is merely passive in his judgment. That's not true. He, he is um, exercising his judgment. And he is pouring out his wrath. Um, but there is a significant piece that that's, he's letting us go the path we deserve. And in his mercy, he has chosen to save some, all who will believe. Um, 
I have one minute. Um, there's a quote by Packer on this. Scripture sees hell as so self-chosen. He appears as God's greatest. Um, hell appears as God's greatest gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. Um, here's some suggested reading. Um, the Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Again, it's fiction. Uh, he's trying to help kind of um, have an apologetic for hell. It's interesting what he uses as hell is suburbia, and that uh, you move farther and farther out in suburbia, in isolation, uh, and you become shadowy, more shadowy and less substantive as the further you get out, because um, you don't want to be around people. You kind of just want to be with yourself. Um, but as you move in towards heaven, you become the, the believers are more substantive and they're whole. Uh, again, it's fiction, it's imaginative, it's trying to help explain some things. Um, what Happened After I Die by Michael Allen Rogers is a, kind of a systematic on it. The Reason for God, that chapter um, I mentioned in particular about hell. Skeletons in the Closet, Joseph Ryan Butler. Again, he's one I would recommend to you, but still read with discernment. He's, again, trying to, that whole book is trying to help people deconstructing. We wouldn't align on everything, but I think he is helpful in his attempts on what he's trying to do. Uh, again, Concise Theology. Uh, this one just came out, so I haven't read it yet, but it's Nine Marks, which is a pretty reliable um, ministry, and they have a small booklet, Is Hell Real? And Dana Ortland saying, yes, it is. And then Westminster Confession of Faith. I just encourage you to look at chapter 32 and 33, but also chapter 3 about God's decrees and uh, how he talks about... Um, how God um, acts to save um, his chosen and how he um, allows judgment to pass by on the word the reprobate. Um, then there's a whole bunch of articles. This one, Making Sense of Hell by Robert Golding. And again, I will get this printed up for you all this week. Um, it is a really interesting. He, he pulls out a math terminology, asymptotic. Anyone know what asymptotic is? Someone has to know in here. Yes. Yeah, so you're moving towards something, but you never get there. And, we, and he's making this argument that we see that in some ways that both heaven and the new creation and hell are not necessarily static, but we're moving into greater, deeper communion with God and greater um, in that consummation. And he's arguing for a similar movement away from God, becoming in many ways less human, because it, to become most human is to become more and more like Jesus. To become less human is to become less like Jesus. Um, you know, and one last illustration that I think was helpful, and I'll close on this, is he just talked about to, to argue to be able to say there's no hell is like trying to be diagnosed with cancer and the doctor saying, well, I'm going to heal you, but leave the cancer in you. And that's not what God's going to do. God is going to, again, put sin and everything that is not good and against his purposes for his new creation outside the city. Now, again, Scripture doesn't tell us as much as we like, but that's where we have to let it be the boundary. And like this is a place we want no one to go. And we have the great good news to tell people how they can be healed and redeemed and rescued by Jesus. 
And so that should motivate us and move us. Um, again, I'll get this uh, printed out. Um, probably the easiest thing is I'll have it for here um, next week, I guess, as a handout. I don't know, we'll figure out a way. We'll put it somewhere. We'll let the admin and people about smart about that stuff deal with it. So I hope it's at least begun to move you towards what we said, a greater confidence in the goodness of God and his purposes for restoration and redemption. Uh, I hope it's kind of challenged you to want to build a, a more biblical foundation on Scripture uh, about hell. And I hope it will also motivate you to have recapture and reclaim a real love for the lost and their need for Jesus. Because otherwise, they're going to experience what Christ cried on the cross, why have you forsaken me? I mean, no, I want no one, even my worst enemy, to experience that. So let me pray. Father, capture our hearts with your beauty and your glory. Help us to be motivated, not just um, comfortable in our own life and your care for us, but to be able to speak the good news of the hope of the resurrection, um, salvation through Christ alone, uh, to those we love, to our neighbors, to those around us. And Lord, I pray for those who are struggling or those we know who are struggling with this. Uh, Lord, give them insight from your word. Convince them of your goodness and love by your spirit uh, that they might um, rebuild on biblical truth that you are a God of love as well as justice and mercy. And you are a God who's pursued us through your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.